morning. Uh, this morning's reading will be from 1 Samuel 1 and 2, which can be found at page 415 of the Bibles. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrificed to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head." chapter 2. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails." Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. 
but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Thanks, Mark. On the 8th of April, 1966, Time magazine published this edition. I've got a photo of it on the screen behind me. It became famous for its title, Is God Dead? The publication was a sensation all around the world. Articles were written about this publication. News stories were told. I understand that the editor in charge of Time magazine at the time, Otto Frumbringer, received something like three and a half thousand letters of complaint. The article largely was about how some progressive or liberal theologian thinkers were trying to remove God from theology. It's not something many of us would have ever really even considered, but the title struck a chord. Partly I think this was because America was ripe at the time for this question to be asked. In America at the time, 97% of people declared a belief in God at that time, but only 27%, less than a third, declared themselves to be religious or deeply religious. This was the time of Billy Graham, Second Vatican Council and the renewal of Catholicism. And yet this question, is God dead, rang a bell that clanged really loudly. In Australia today, about 45% of the population describe themselves as Christian, but only 7% describe themselves as active participants in Christianity. And as we look at the state of our church, well, the church is a wider institution, it's not hard, is it, to see why many people have walked away. There is, even in some parts of our society, a palpable hatred towards the church, I think many of us would think that is justified in some cases. If we look at the institution of the church today, many might ask again the question that Time magazine asked so well in 1966. Is God dead? And if he's not dead, has he just stopped listening? In many ways, I think the book of 1 Samuel helps us to answer just that question is has God stopped listening 1 Samuel is the story of how Israel became a monarchy a nation ruled by kings you might remember that Israel was God's special people at the time of 1 Samuel when it was written they were in God's special place in the special land but things were a mess And it seems that God is almost absent. In chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Samuel, we read, In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. You might wonder, was God not speaking because he was dead? Well, 1 Samuel shows us that despite the mess Israel had got itself into, God is still very much in control. 1 Samuel, through some really fascinating stories, shows us the power and might of God. But it also shows us, with great clarity, I think, the problem of humanity. It shows us so clearly the tendency we have to turn our backs on God. In 1 Samuel, the lack of God's voice, that's not so much because God has died or left. 
but because Israel has turned their backs on God. They're no longer listening to him or no longer following in his footsteps. I have two young daughters. They've never done this to me yet, but because I've got two of them, I expect that one day this will happen. You know that gesture where someone raises their hand and they say something like this when you're speaking to them? Talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. You know that gesture? That's kind of Israel's attitude towards God at the moment, at the start of 1 Samuel. It's a dangerous place to be. Yet I want you to see that God is a gracious God. Why should we read the book of 1 Samuel today? It seems like it's from such a distant land. Well, I don't think our society necessarily is quite so bold as to hold their hand up to God and say, talk to the hand, not the face. But certainly our society as a whole is no longer seeking to hear God's voice. And so in that respect, we're in a similar position to Israel in the days of 1 Samuel. Before we look at 1 Samuel, I just want to give you a little brief recap on where is, or who Israel was. We've been looking at Matthew's Gospel for the last six weeks as a church. It's been a while since we were in the Old Testament. So let me just remind you of some of these things. Right back in Genesis, God chose a man called Abraham to become the father of Israel. And God made three promises to Abraham. Firstly, he promised descendants. He took Abraham outside at night one day and he said, look up at the stars, count them if you can. And God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Next, God promised Abraham land, a land to call his own. Third, he promised Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to all nations. Now, these things don't all happen at once, but by the time we get to 1 Samuel, Israel as a nation is populous. There's many, many of them. They're living in the land that flow with milk and honey. They're in their land. But there's a problem in 1 Samuel. It's not that God has left his nation, but that the people have left God. Let me show you. Let me show you this. Turn back in your Bibles just a few pages uh, to Judges chapter 21. It's on page 407 of your Bibles. Now between Judges and 1 Samuel we have the book of Ruth. It's been wedged in there. We looked at Ruth as a church last year. Chronologically though, 1 Samuel picks up where Judges left off. Ruth, you might remember, is a book that at least in part legitimizes the rule of King David. He's, he, we will see, is one of the central characters in 1 Samuel. So, 1 Samuel picks off where Judges left off. We're in the time of Judges. And I want you to see what life was like at the start of 1 Samuel. So there at the end of Judges, let me read to you from Judges chapter 21, verse 24. Verse 24, chapter 21 of Judges, it says, At that time the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And the last few chapters of Judges are some of the most horrific chapters in the whole of the Bible. Rape and murder and forced marriage. And the book finishes with this line, In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And given the context of the last bit of Judges, chapters 19 to 21, what they saw fit to do was not to live in peace and harmony with one another, recognising the kingly rule of God. No, rather they are in a kind of take-what-you-can-get-away-with kind of world. 
There's a leadership vacuum at this time. I remember when I was at college, a lecturer of mine used to have a phrase that he loved. I won't get it quite right, but he says something like, people always seem to hate the king, but they hate anarchy even more. Time of Judges is a time of anarchy. This is foreshadowed at the end with this statement, Israel had no king. Now, of course, they're referring here to the absence of an earthly king. Israel had a king all along. God was their king. That's why when he dwelt with them in the tabernacle, he was in the center of the camp. It was God who issued the laws and the decrees, just like a king. He was Israel's king. The people were saying, talk to the hand. They'd stop listening to their God, stop listening to their king. I wonder what you think is needed at this time. Is it an earthly king? Will an earthly king fix things? I think yes, partly. So will a king really solve the underlying problem? I think the answer to that is ultimately no. Because what Israel really needs is a king that can save them. A king who can deal with their rebellion towards God. And human kings, no matter how great their leadership style is, They can't do that. When they were originally written, it seems like one Samuel and two Samuel and one kings and two kings, the four separate books in our Bibles, when they were first written, it seems like they were all together in one very, very long scroll. In this long scroll, we see Israel get a human king. We see that in the book of one Samuel. In fact, they get a whole series of kings. And for a while, the human kings lead Israel to great fortune under God. We're going to see that in the weeks to come as we work our way through 1 Samuel. But as these kings turn their back on God, we see the state of the nation again descend into trouble. And right at the end of two kings, we see Jerusalem, the city of God, captured. We see the eyes of the king at that time plucked out. And he's led before King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The exile has happened. That's the exile we looked at when we were studying Isaiah. At that point in history, at the end of these four books, that were originally one book, Israel no longer has so many people. They no longer have their land. And they're certainly not a blessing to anyone. And we see right at the end of this book then that the human king experiment ultimately fails. So we ask a question, are earthly kings the answer? And the answer is ultimately no. What's really needed is submission to God's kingly rule. And that I think is the overarching message of 1 Samuel right through to the end of 2 Kings. That's a bit of a snapshot about where the book fits in the story of God. Having said all that, let's go and have a look at how 1 Samuel starts. The book opens with an introduction to Hannah. Mark read it to us before. Hannah, we heard, is the wife of Elkanah. We're told as we read the story that Hannah's not in a good place. Elkanah has another wife and we're told she's Hannah's rival. We're told this rival provokes Hannah to the point where she breaks and weeps. She gets so upset that she stops eating. And the source of her pain, well, Hannah's not been able to have children. And I want to stop just for a sec here, just to acknowledge that while some of the things that we're going to read about in 1 Samuel are are really foreign to us, for example, husbands with two wives, pretty foreign to us today, other things will strike a, 
a real chord of familiarity for us. Some of us here may have felt Hannah's pain firsthand. Or perhaps if we haven't felt it ourselves, we might have walked that path with friends and family, sharing in that pain. If that's you today, I want you to see here that there is no blame attributed to Hannah here. It's not her fault. She's not presented as being more sinful than Elkanah's other wife. In fact, the opposite is actually shown as true. Hannah is held up in Samuel as a shining light. She's held up as a beacon of hope, an example of faithfulness. Indeed, I think in Hannah we see a a great contrast between her faith and the disobedience of Israel as a whole. In Hannah's story, we see one of the great themes of the book of 1 Samuel being told. It's a theme of inversion. It's the story of the proud and the haughty falling and breaking their necks. It's the story of a young boy slaying a nine-foot giant. It's the story of the most unlikely-looking fellow becoming the king, the great king. It's also the story of why an earthly king will never solve Israel's problems. Earthly kings can do many things. They can fight wars, they can gain lands, they can administer peace, but they can't really and truly save. That's God's job. That's the work of the true king. Who can save Hannah? Who alone can provide a child? God alone can do that. Let me read to you from verse 9. I'd love you to follow along. It's on page 416, verse 9 of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. It says this, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. In a time where everyone did as they saw fit, Hannah comes before God weeping and she prays to him. She's so upset and she recognises that her only hope of conceiving a child lies with God. In her prayer, she makes a vow, Lord, give me a son and I'll give him to you. And as she prays, Eli, the priest, is watching on and if you needed another insight into what life was like in this time, have a look at the words of Eli. He assumes she's drunk and he orders her to put away her wine. See, so much of the story that we read in 1 Samuel will feel foreign to us. It'll feel different. 1 Samuel involves characters who are prophets and kings and battles and giants and shepherds. That's not the stuff of only in 2019, is it? Our story involves cafes and coffee and Saturday morning sport. But it also involves work deadlines and assignments and bills to pay and crises in families. We may be in a different world to Samuel and Hannah, but this image of Hannah coming before God and weeping, well, that's relatable, isn't it? That's powerful. 
Hannah deeply troubled. She brings her concerns to God. She does it in a time where God had largely been forgotten. See, Hannah knows God and she comes to him and pleads, save me, she says. I think that's such a great reminder for us today in the midst of a world that's largely forgotten God. We need to remember to keep bringing our cares and concerns to God the Father. I want to encourage you to keep praying. Our God is a God who loves to hear our prayers. Our God is a God who is active and listens. If there are things wearing you down at the moment, if there are things causing you deep anguish, pray about those things. Roll your concerns onto God. He's powerful, He's just, and He's a loving God. Perhaps at the moment, just praying to God might seem a little difficult. If, if you would love someone to pray with you, come and see me after. There are many people here who would love to join you in bringing your prayers and petitions to our Father God. Hannah pleads with God, and in his kindness and mercy, God listens to Hannah, and she gives birth to a son. He's no ordinary son, though, is he? From before his conception, he was promised, dedicated to the Lord, In a time where so many had turned their backs on God and stopped listening to him, Hannah promises to give her baby over to God. Hannah names her boy Samuel. I understand that's a bit of a pun because the word Samuel sounds very similar in the Hebrew language to God hears, the word for God hears. So in naming Samuel, Hannah is essentially saying, God has heard my prayers. Well, let me read to you how this happens from verse 24. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord." And he worshipped the Lord there. In a time where everyone did as they saw fit, we have Hannah honouring her promise. Imagine how hard it would have been for Hannah, waiting for years to have a baby. And then she waits for that baby to be weaned. I wonder if she kind of kept the feeding going for longer than most probably would normally. Regardless of what it costs her, Hannah honours her promise and she dedicates Samuel to the Lord. And when she does so, she prays at the start of chapter 2, a truly wonderful prayer. I want to work through this prayer with you over the next few minutes. I'd love you to look for two things in this prayer as we read it together. Firstly, I want you to note the state of Hannah's heart. The second thing I want you to see is the way in which this prayer seems to speak of God righting the wrongs sort of flipping things upside down, inverting things, if you will. Let me read from the start of this prayer in chapter 2. Then Hannah prayed and she said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. 
You see Hannah's heart here rejoicing in the Lord, and she rejoices because she knows what God is like. She knows him as the one who delivers. After all, he delivered her, he rescued her. Because of God, she gave birth to Samuel. And she goes on, it tells us, to have a number of other children. Today, our need for deliverance, it might not be anything like Hannah's. But all of us today can rejoice in the knowledge that here is a God who saves. That our God is a God who is able and willing to change us. Hannah knows of the holiness of God. You see that there? She knows of his steadfast power. She refers to him as a rock. And at a time where everyone in the land did as they see fit, Hannah knows that God knows. Hannah knows that nothing can be hidden from God. In a time where appalling things were happening, Hannah knows that God knows what's going on. And that's a great comfort for Hannah. Over the weekend, we've heard terrible news coming out of New Zealand and Christchurch. How could this happen? Is God dead? Hannah reminds us that God knows what's going on. He's not deaf or blind. Should be a great comfort for us today. God knows. Today, I think many of us will be yearning for justice, yearning for justice for Christchurch, if such a thing is really even possible, yearning for justice in a church that's broken. Perhaps we're yearning for justice ourselves. God knows today what we're like as well. He knows each of us, warts and all, and yet even knowing us like that, he sent his son to die for us out of love for us. He knows you, he knows me, he knows our deeds, and yet he still loves us. For Hannah, I think, though, her delight here comes from seeing the knowledge that God is a just God. He knows what we think of him, he knows how we lived, and he's a God of justice. Hannah's seen the world all around her with their people with their backs turned to God, doing as they see fit, and she knows that God knows what's happening. And it's a source of comfort for her because she knows that eventually God will make things right. He'll bring justice. Let me show you that. Let me read on in Hannah's prayer. She says, The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends 
of the earth. Can you see here the way in which things are tipped upside down? Warriors, the mighty, are brought down and those who stumble are lifted up. Those who are full become hungry and those who are hungry become full. And for Hannah, she who has no children will have many, while the one who has will pine away. Now, I think this prayer right at the start of the book, it kind of sets up one of the major themes in the book of 1 Samuel. That is, it doesn't matter if you look tough. It doesn't matter if you're tall or strong or smart. It doesn't matter if you're a nine-foot-tall giant or if you're rich or if you command an army. Appearances don't matter to God. What matters is the heart. And that idea jumps out most clearly for us later in the book when we read about Samuel, who is then an old man, anointing David. And in that context, the Lord says to Samuel these words. He says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I wonder what the state of your heart is today. I'm of course not asking from a medical perspective. I'm not so interested in your cholesterol or your arrhythmia or your blood pressure as important as they are for your ongoing health and safety. I'm asking today, how are you responding to God? Some of you might have heard me tell you this story before, but in a previous church I worked in, there was an older lady who was part of the staff team. I admired her very, very much. She had years of ministry experience under her belt and she was a very wise woman. In that church, it was our practice to get together as a staff team on a Tuesday morning. We'd sit in a circle and at the end of our meeting time together, we'd go round that circle and list off some prayer points that we had for that week. Did this every Tuesday morning and every time it came to this lady... She asked for exactly the same prayer point. She'd say, pray that our people, and pray that we would have soft hearts. It was, it was kind of like a joke almost among the staff team. we get to this lady, everyone knew what she was going to say before she'd said it. But as I reflect on it today, she wasn't really being funny. She just understood the story of the Bible. She knows how frequently we all turn our backs on God. How quick we are to shut him out of our lives. Daily, she knew that we're tempted to do as we see fit. God wants our hearts. He knows our hearts already. And he knows us. As we get into the book of 1 Samuel, as we read more about the state of Israel, we might ask ourselves, is God dead? As we look around our world today, we might ask a similar thing today. 1 Samuel will help us to see that God is very much active. He was active then, he's active today. He had not left Israel even though they had turned their backs on him. Throughout this book, we're going to see that God is still very much alive, that he's still very much in control. We're also going to see that God wants us to follow him, to walk in his ways and to have a heart that yearns for him. For Israel, they thought the problem, or the solution to their problem, I should say, was a human king who would protect them. 
And while their kings had a heart that was after God's own heart, and while that king directed the people back towards God, things went well for Israel. But ultimately we see in the story of 1 Samuel through to 2 Kings that human kings fail. That's because kings and queens are human just like us. They're subject to sinfulness. Another solution is needed. That solution, ultimately, the Bible tells us, is found in King Jesus. He is God's true king, the one who reveals the Father, the one who points us back to God himself. He's the king who can truly save. Looking forward to exploring that with you further as we keep reading through 1 Samuel. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we come before you today asking that you would be at work in our hearts. Help us to yearn for you. Father, we thank you that you are a God of justice. As we look around our world, we plead that your justice would be revealed. Father, we thank you for Jesus who has rescued us, who has saved us, and who ultimately will bring justice to this world. Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit that is shaping our hearts, and we ask that you would help them to stay soft. Amen.